This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, crying out, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 5. Now, I don't want to speak broadly, and I don't want to just lump you into maybe something that's just a me problem. But usually when we come across passages like that, and when or if we read passages like that, that's how they resonate. Dry and empty and just a list of names over and over, and we'll find ourselves asking the question, what is this for? Why am I reading this list of names? And usually just saying the word genealogy around somebody makes them yawn a little bit, right? Because it feels like reading some sort of weird ancient phone book. But the genealogies were really unique literature. Because here we have a list of names. But not just a list of names, a list of people. And what's interesting about genealogies is often they wouldn't just go from generation to generation. 
usually they would highlight some key figures in the family and then sometimes skip several generations before the next name has mentioned. And so some of these people might not be the direct father of the next person who's listed. But this is teaching us about these sweeping generations of people. And so not only is this a list of names, but this is a list of generations and generations and generations of people. But not simply people. But look at how that passage begins. So this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and blessed them and named them. This is a list of people and generations who were created by God in the image of God. There's power in that. There's beauty in that. There's nothing dry about these people who breathed and lived and who were created and formed in the image of God, carrying on this dynasty of human life. And if this is your first Sunday with us, We've been going through a sermon series called Introducing God, where we're looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we're seeing how God introduces himself to us, how God reveals himself to us. And in this passage here, we see that he is the God of generations, who loves and cares for not only every name in that list, but every name they represent and every name that's been brought into this world since. And so these people all share that. They have that commonality. And they were created by God, loved by God, and made in his image. But they also share another commonality. And for this one, we have to jump to the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and 14, Paul gives an abbreviated and different kind of genealogy. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, So death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. You see, not only did these names share the commonality of being created in the image of God, they fell into the same commonality and the same common grouping that all of us here today do as well. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we were created in the image of God, but our actions and our desire to rebel against God has taken that image and marred it and changed it. And because of that, the wages of sin is death, and death had a mighty reign from Adam to Moses and from everyone that lived beyond that because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, when that fullness of time had come, when enough of those names had passed, brought into this world salvation. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. And Jesus came into the world born as a helpless and vulnerable baby, and he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with men, and he began to go all around the region, teaching people that the kingdom of God had come, and he was the one bringing it into the world. 
He met people where they were, whether they seemed to be sinner or saint. He healed the sick and gave sight to the blind, even raised the dead and developed a pretty large following of people just wanting to be around him. And then he begins to march toward Jerusalem. And on that week that we now call Holy Week or the Passion of Christ, he marches into Jerusalem and begins a straight line towards the cross. And he suffered at the hands of human governments, oppressed and broken and tortured, and was nailed to a criminal's cross and died for us, taking that death on himself offering himself as a sacrifice that if anyone would trust in him, that we can be forgiven and released of that sin that reigned from Adam to Moses and beyond. But not only that, not only did Christ die on that Good Friday, but as we're here to celebrate this Sunday, and as we do every single Sunday, on that third day, Christ took the grip of death and broke it loose and came out of the tomb, resurrected, bringing the fullness of salvation into the world. And so Jesus sweeps into time and space and history, and he defeats sin with death and death with life. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of how much God loves us and how God was rectifying the problem that began in Genesis chapter 3. But so what? What does that mean for us as we're gathered here together? Does that change anything about who we are? Does it change our identity? Does it change our actions, the way that we live and move and breathe and think? What impact does that Easter Sunday have on us today, thousands of years later? Well, I'm glad you asked. And Paul is going to give us an answer as we look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And this is what his word says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteous, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, 
but under grace. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for all that you've done for us and all that you are. God, we thank you for the message of that Easter Sunday when Christ rose up from the grave, taking death and putting it to shame, making it nothing compared to the power of your life. So Father, as we read your word, as we examine it, as we examine ourselves and our hearts, teach us how we should respond to this Easter message. Not just today, but every single moment of every single day of our lives. And so God, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and our risen Lord. Amen. As we look at this passage and try to decide how we respond to the gospel, to the message of the resurrection, the first thing that Paul makes very clear is that we have to die. Our first response to the gospel message is to die. On Good Friday, we see Jesus humiliated, put to shame, tortured, and killed. And in our Good Friday service, the last two passages that we read are the moment when Jesus said, it is finished and breathed his last. And then when we see the men take his dead and lifeless body and put it in the tomb. Because you see, for Easter, there had to be Good Friday. For resurrection to occur, there has to be death. And so that's exactly what Jesus did. And now Paul, writing on the other side of the resurrection, all through the book of Romans, is teaching us about salvation. He's writing about how we can be justified. How sinful people can stand in the presence of a just and holy God and be considered blameless and righteous anyway. He teaches us about grace and about how God offered this as a gift to receive, not something that we have to earn or try to buy or maintain for ourselves. He teaches us about forgiveness. That no matter what we've done, no matter how much we think we've caused, no matter how much havoc our life is contained, that we can be forgiven and our debt can be paid. And he teaches us about having life. A life that can be lived without sin, shame, or guilt. But how? How do we take hold of this? How does this become true for us? What does that transaction look like? And the answer is that something has to die. Look at these first couple of verses in verse 2 and 3. He says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul says right here that salvation itself, even though we celebrate salvation bringing life, salvation begins with death. Now, I want you to think about the time leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus had a lot of tense interactions with a lot of people. And the crowds began to be less and less numerous as he got closer and closer to Jerusalem, and especially once he got closer and closer to the cross. But one place where he had the most conflict and the most confrontation was with one of his own disciples. 
one who is incredibly well-meaning, but wasn't really paying attention. Because we see one moment where Jesus begins predicting that they're going to go to Jerusalem and that he's going to die. And that really messed with Peter's understanding of how all this was going to happen. And he says, no, not on my watch, Jesus. I won't let anyone kill you. I won't let anyone harm you. And I'm sure he thought Jesus was going to kind of respond with a thank you. I appreciate that. I'm so glad that you're going to fight for me. Don't let me die. But then much to Peter's surprise, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about things the way they're supposed to be. You're not thinking about eternal things. You're thinking about temporary things. But then again, when it all is coming down, on that night when Jesus is betrayed and arrested, these men come up to take Jesus, and Peter makes good on his promise. He draws his sword and he lashes out against one of the guards. And again, Jesus rebukes him and in fact heals the guard. Because Jesus knew there was no salvation without death. We are constantly fighting against our own death. Physically, obviously, none of us want to die but also emotionally and mentally and spiritually, our life is a struggle where we're trying to hold on to the things that we believe give us life. We cling on to all of these things that we see as normal. We cling to all of these things that we see as life-giving, the things that give us purpose, the things that give us our identity, the things in which we feel like we can find safety and security and value and meaning. We pile all of those things up and we hoard them together. And once we have them, whether they're good or bad, whether they're sinful or righteous, we cling on to those things with white knuckles because we feel like if any one of those things goes, if any one of those things falls away, then we'll be left with nothing. And part of us will die as well. But then in comes Jesus. And he calls us to put all of that to death. He tells us to die to ourselves daily. To die to our hopes and dreams, to our rights, to the things that we think that we've earned, the things that we think have value and meaning. Jesus says you die to those things daily. He says that we're called to die, to sin, to look at those things that are unholy and unrighteous in our lives and expel them from our lives and hate them and make war with them. Jesus says, you need to die to everything but me and follow after me. He says, if you hold anything more tightly than you hold on to Christ, then you're not following Jesus at all. You see, the reality of salvation is that salvation is free, but it's costly. It's free and that we don't have to do anything to earn it. We don't have to reach some sort of merit status with God where we finally check off all the boxes and he says, okay, I think you've earned it now. Or we don't have to have a place of prestige or wealth in this world where God says, okay, now I value you. He gives it to us as a free gift that costs us nothing to receive, but then demands everything of us once we have it. Salvation is simple, but it's not easy. Jesus made the way to where we have to do nothing to earn salvation. He did all the heavy work and the hard work for us, and all we have to do is trust in his grace and follow after Christ. Following Jesus and finding salvation is simple, but the life that he calls us to is not easy. 
It's a life that can still be filled with pain and heartache, sometimes even more than when we trusted in Jesus to begin with. See, we, me, as pastors, we call people on a regular basis to come to Jesus and find life. Come to Jesus and find salvation. Come to Jesus and find forgiveness. Come to Jesus and find identity and purpose. And all of those things are powerfully true. But so often we forget to mention that before you find all of those things, you have to die first. Paul had everything that he'd ever worked for in his life. And when he met the resurrected Christ, he writes the words that I count all of this as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. Everything I once held dear, I count it as nothing. Paul held these things tightly, and then he met Jesus and said, nope, I want that more. And we have that same calling to count everything as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. To daily die to ourselves, die to sin, lose our lives in order to save them. In fact, Jesus says, before you come and follow me, you need to count the cost. Because no builder would start building without counting the cost because they might run out of money and not be able to complete it. And so don't come follow me if you're not willing to face it to the end, if you're not willing to persevere. Count the cost and recognize that this will cost you everything so that you can gain even more. And I think part of the problem that we have in the culture in which we live is that it is easy It's easy to come to church. It's easy to profess being a Christian. It doesn't cost us anything. In fact, still, to this day, it's more surprising to hear someone who doesn't identify as a follower of Jesus than someone who does. Because we've made it so easy where you can just get in the rhythms of Christianity and get in the rhythms of following Jesus without having to follow him at all. But our history throughout the history of Christianity, and throughout the world today, there have been men and women and boys and girls who knew that if they started following after Jesus, that it would cost them not just their reputations. It wouldn't just cost them the comfort of their lives, but it could cost them their families. It could cost them their physical comfort. It could cost them their lives. And yet they looked at Christ and said, I'm going to go anyway because what Jesus has is so much better than anything that I could lose. Jesus died for us. That's not an idea. That's not a philosophy that we've created. If we are here this morning and we profess that truth, we believe that Jesus actually, literally, physically died for us and suffered these things so that we could have life and salvation. And he calls us to do the same to die to sin, to die to ourselves, to die for the good of others, to daily take up our cross and follow after him. And if we aren't willing to do that, we aren't really following Jesus. Because there can be no resurrection without death. There can be no salvation without without a willingness to die to ourselves so that we can live to Christ. And so that's where it begins. We have to die. But then Paul teaches us something about our identity changes. 
that when we trust in Christ for salvation, that we are united with Christ. When we talk about being saved, we use a lot of language. We talk about salvation. We can talk about justification and sanctification. We can talk about freedom and forgiveness and grace and mercy and life and new life and rebirth and being born again. All of these beautiful phrases that we use that are all true. But I think one that's often neglected, and maybe because we don't really know what to do with it, is a term that Paul uses here, unity. We think a lot about unity with the church, and we talk about that a lot here. That when you become a follower of Christ, that you are not doing that alone, that it's not an individual thing. You are not saved to a personal relationship with Jesus, but you are saved into a body. You're saved into a family, into a kingdom, and you are united with other people. But also Paul teaches us here that we have union with Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so Paul says, when we follow after Jesus, our old self dies. That he takes that brokenness and that sinfulness, and he takes who we were, and he puts us to death, and he makes something new. That we were crucified with Christ. But when something dies, it has to be buried. And that's where we get this beautiful sacrament of baptism. Where we all come together and watch someone be dunked in some water. And there's nothing special about it except for the fact that Jesus says it is profoundly special and important. And the imagery of baptism is so layered and so detailed. I know I say this all the time, but my favorite thing to do in the world is to baptize someone because it just preaches for you. And so baptism, we see the washing away of sins. We see the picture of being cleansed by water. But we also see the picture of death and burial and resurrection. When someone's dipped beneath the surface of the water, they're brought back up, and we see that as new birth and new life. They're buried, and they're raised again. But it's even more than that. Baptism is a picture of union. Look at the language here. Paul says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Uh, before that, he says, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and were buried, therefore, with him? This is something that we do in and through and with Jesus, and it unites us together, not simply with the body of Christ, but with Christ himself. You see, we want, for better or for worse, we want salvation to be about ourselves about our works. It feels good to say, you know what? I want to get my life right. I want to have a fresh start. I want to do the right things now. I want to make the right decisions now. And so I am going to work my way to Jesus. But when we look at Paul's presentation of salvation here, all we do, literally, the only thing that we do for our salvation is die. Everything else is done by Christ. 
We're buried with Christ in baptism and raised by God through Christ, and we're united with him forever. And Paul teaches us here that Jesus breaks us free from sin, the sin that we can't escape, the death that we can't navigate our way out of. Jesus takes those chains and breaks them loose and sets us free from sin, and he wraps us up in himself. He covers our shame through his own shame on the cross, and he drapes us in his righteousness and unites us to himself. And Paul is saying here that we are united with Christ. The same Christ that he says in Colossians is the one whom the whole world was created in and through. The one who John teaches us was with God in the beginning and is God. And so Paul is saying that when we trust in Christ for salvation, we are united with the one holy, just God of the universe. That is an amazing thing to contemplate. The God who spoke the universe into being brings us into himself and welcomes us in as his sons and his daughters. And if that was all there was to this, it would be amazing. More than we could ever fathom or wrap our minds around. But somehow there's more. Because if we're united with Christ, that means not only do we receive his righteousness, but we also get his inheritance as sons and daughters of God. And Peter teaches us that is an inheritance that is stored up by God waiting for us, protected, and waiting for us to come and receive it. Not something that we earn, but something that God has set apart for us. And it's an inheritance beyond our wildest imagination. That's how Paul is able to say all the suffering that I incur is nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus and my eternal hope in him. Paul saw the big picture. He says, you know what? What's coming for me is so much better than anything that I could obtain here because I get the inheritance not of a king. I get the inheritance of the king of kings, and he is going to share that with me not for a simple time, but for all of eternity. Paul says that if we have died with Christ in baptism, then we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Not simply that we go off somewhere in the distance to be spirits forever, but we have the promise and revelation that one day Jesus will come again and make everything right and everything new, including our physical bodies. Everything will be perfected and united in Christ, and we will be with him forever. And that's the inheritance that he has promised us through this salvation. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, this is the gospel. And yes, it requires a lot. It requires a lifetime of faithfully pursuing after Christ and being willing to give up things that we thought mattered so deeply and so dearly, the things that we thought made us who we are. But we have this promise that whatever we're called to give up in this life, what we're going to receive beyond it is so much better than we could ever imagine. And so it is worth it. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, if you've never been through those waters of baptism, then please do not leave this morning without talking with me or with Adam or with one of our community group leaders about what it means to follow in Christ for salvation and be baptized. We will be here through the entire service at any point. Just come and talk with us and let's talk about the joy of knowing Christ as Savior and Lord. If you're here, 
And you are a follower of Christ. In just a moment, we're going to come take this little meal that we call communion. And every time we take it, we talk about how we come to the table with different hands from different places, all reaching to the same table because we have the same Savior. And so we have communion with each other. But when we come to this table, we are also coming to be in communion with Christ. And let this meal remind you that Christ has saved you into himself, that he's taken who you were and put it to death and raised you up into new life and wrapped you in his righteousness. Because, yeah, we need to die. But also, once we do and Christ raises again, we are united with him. And then comes the even more difficult part. We have to learn to live for Christ. We die, we're united with Christ, and then we live to Christ. I can't imagine what it felt like that first Easter morning as those women got to the tomb. I love that it was just a cool, crisp morning this morning because it just feels new and it feels full of life. And so when I woke up and walked outside this morning, I feel like maybe that was a little glimpse of, of what that must have felt like just on such a small scale. And when those women went to the tomb and found it empty, they realized everything he said was true. And they got to see that picture of Christus Victor, of Christ, the victorious warrior who was taken by Roman oppression, who was taken by the religious leaders of his time. All of the sources of power in the world rise up against him and take him and they put him to death and they put him in the grave and the grave takes its hold over him, but not for long. And Jesus, through the full power of God, proved himself to be the great victorious warrior, not simply over sin, but over death itself. And to this point, death was pretty much undefeated. And that's what Paul teaches us in verses 8 through 10. He says, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him, because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus has won the victory over sin and over death. But remember, we've been united with Christ. We are one in Christ. And so not only do we get to share in the inheritance that was for Jesus, but also the victories that Jesus wins, we also win those as well. That's why Paul says that we are more than conquerors through Christ because he's defeated these things for us and we get to just live inside of that victory. And Paul tells us here that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God and Christ Jesus because Jesus has won that victory for you. And so because of that, you are victorious as well. But there's a temptation with salvation. In our study on Thursday nights at our community group that meets at our house, we're talking through Francis Chan's book, Letters to the Church. And he gives an example of what can happen when power is restrained greatly. And he talks about how elephants, elephants are really big, yes? Okay, we're all in agreement. Elephants are very big and very strong. But elephants, if you train them the right way and tame them the right way, can be trained into being restrained with just a piece of string around their ankle. 
If you work long enough and hard enough, they'll start to believe in their minds that that string is strong enough to hold them in place. Even though they have the power inside of them not simply to break that string, but to break some of the strongest chains that you could put around them, those elephants start to believe because of their confinement that they don't have the power to break the string. A lot of times, we can become that way. We become so complacent in the fact that Jesus has won the victory for us that we start to settle, and we start to get comfortable, and life starts to tame us and shape us, and sin starts to come in, and temptation starts to come in, and we start to feel a little overwhelmed, and we start to forget the power that we have through Christ. And we start to say, I can't handle this, or this is overwhelming me, or this is overtaking me. I can't withstand this temptation. We start to feel defeated. But Paul rebukes that in these last three verses. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your body as members to sin, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul is asking us here, why? Why in the world? What sense does it make to allow our enemy to claim victory over us when it's already been defeated? Paul says, no, we don't have to let that win. Sin and temptation is just a string tied around our ankle, and we don't have to let it have victory. In fact, Christ has already defeated it. And so he says each day we have this responsibility to not allow sin to reign over us. To not allow temptation to overwhelm us, but to remember that Christ has won that victory on Good Friday, sealed it on Easter, and given it to us at the point of our salvation so that we don't have to be enslaved any longer. Each day, we make that declaration that sin will not reign because Christ has given us the victory. Instead, we break free from those slavery ties of sin. We break free from these little strings that try to bind us, and we use our bodies, we use our lives to do good and to be instruments of righteousness, to live and to use our freedom the way that Christ has called us to use our freedom by going out and living the life he's called us to live, of being people who declare the gospel in our words and in our lives. Paul says here that you can present yourself as those who have been brought from death to life. And I wonder how often do we live that way? How often do we remember that we were once enslaved to sin, but we have been set free by the power of Christ, that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made us alive in Christ through the riches of his mercy and the love that he lavished on us. How often do we forget that we have been united with Christ and promised eternal life? How often do we forget those things and so we live like people who are still enslaved and dead and separated from God? But we have been united with Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead, and it is the power of God living and working through us, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to accomplish things far beyond what we could possibly ever imagine or understand. 
And so we need to live like these kind of people. We need to be the kind of people who boldly share the gospel everywhere that we go, telling people the good news of the Christ who loved us so much that he died and rose again so that we can have salvation. We need to be the kind of people who recognize the sin in our own lives and say, no, 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 Christ died to set me free from this and I won't be a slave any longer. We need to be the kind of people who look at the world through the eyes of Christ. And when we see people that are poor and oppressed and hurting, when we see people that are lost or broken, that we see them with compassion and we are the hands and feet of Christ caring for those in need and using the gifts that God has given us for the edification, for the building up of the church and for the good of the world around us so that we can declare God's grace and God's mercy. That's how the gospel changes us from the inside out. Yes, we die, but we are united with Christ so that we can live to Christ. Our God is the God of generations. He's the God of genealogies. He's the God of life and death and new life. And he's also written a new genealogy, a different kind of, of list of names. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, he says, the one who conquers, the one who is victorious in Christ, will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess their name before my Father and before my angels. And we have to ask, is our name among those names that Christ will declare to God on our behalf? Are we a part of that genealogy that will last for eternity? Have we trusted in Christ? Have we died to sin? Have we been baptized and raised to life in Jesus? And if not, again, please don't leave this room without following after Christ and letting us know that you want to be baptized and find that life everlasting. And if you have, if that statement is true about you, that one day you will stand before a just and holy God with all your sin and all your baggage, and Jesus will look at you and say, nope, here's a white robe. I know their name. They belong to me. If that's true of you and your name is in that eternal genealogy, are you living like you believe in a risen Savior? Like you believe that you've been set free? Are we living like people who are moving on an eternal spectrum? If not, we should be. If not, we're an elephant tied with a string. But God wants more, expects more, and is calling us to more individually and as a church to live like followers of a resurrected king who know that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain because Christ is more than enough now and he will give us more than we can imagine once we breathe our last or he makes everything right and new. I love the Christian calendar. I love that we have these days that help us remember the reality is, every day is Easter. 
every breath we draw, we draw in a world where Christ is risen from the dead and Christ is king. And so if you came in this morning with excitement and joy and energy because today is Easter Sunday, then tomorrow when you wake up, remember tomorrow is Easter Monday and Tuesday is Easter Tuesday and you have the power of the resurrected Christ working in and through you every single day. And so let's be the kind of people who make that known to the world.